So for Mother's Day, I thought it would be appropriate to uh, do a sermon on the passage where Jephthah kills his daughter. (laughs) And by Mother's Day, of course, Mother's Day sermon, of course, I just mean the sermon that we happen to be preaching on Mother's Day. Um, But, uh, you know, with Mother's Day, that signals the coming eventually of Father's Day, and a lot of fathers like to get tools for Father's Day, things to work on house projects. Jordan is probably one of those sort of dads. Not me, okay? Um, we need to have our sink fixed and, and thinks that we can do it ourselves. We'll see about that. I'm the sort of person, though, if I work on a project, it's likely only going to make it get worse. Um, I'm probably just going to get it. it it's just gonna, it's going to go from it was bad and need to be fixed to now it definitely needs to be fixed and it probably urgently needs to be fixed. And that's similar to the account we have here. Um, although God raises up Jephthah, uses Jephthah to save Israel out of their circumstances, in many ways, it actually just gets a whole lot worse. Things don't necessarily improve. Last week, we saw that God graciously provided a deliverer in the person of Jephthah, that God unrelentingly delivers his people despite their unrelenting idolatry. But now, in the person of Jephthah, we get a portrait of Israel's, and by extension, all of humanity's, our our inability to fix the mess that we have made of things. Our passage communicates this to us. It's telling us this, that although God provides a deliverer, that being Jephthah here, this deliverer that God, uh, this, this deliverance that Jephthah brings is marred with disaster and tragedy. That although God has provided a deliverer in the person of Jephthah, the deliverance that Jephthah brings is marred with disaster and tragedy. And we have three scenes in our passage, as Holly read for us so well. Um, All of these scenes are marked by some sort of negotiation. Really, the negotiation even goes back to last week, where Jephthah negotiates with the Gileadites to become their leader. But then we also have here that he's going to negotiate with the king of the Ammonites. He's going to try to negotiate with God. And then finally, he's going to negotiate, if we can call it that, with Ephraim. And so first, we'll get his negotiations, negotiations with Ammon, which we'll go through pretty quickly here. But in verses 12 through 28, Ammonites, the Ammonites accused Israel of having stolen their land. And Jephthah responds by saying a whole bunch of things, but essentially the the crux of it is, no, we never stole your land. In fact, the land was never yours to begin with. It wasn't the Ammonites, okay? It was actually the Amorites, which are different people. And Jephthah says, God gave us their land when those Amorites, you know, they were the aggressors and they came out and attacked us. We were just going to pass through peaceably. And so they attacked us unprovoked, but God did give us their land. And so this isn't, we haven't stolen anything. We certainly didn't steal your land. But the king of Ammon refused to listen, and so now it's about to go down. A battle is going to happen. And that brings us then to uh, Jephthah's negotiation with God in chapter 11, verse 29 and 40. And let's read, Holly's already read this, but let's read again verses 30 and 31. Key, a key part of this passage. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors, from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, 
shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And as we saw, it is his daughter, his only child, the passage says, that is the one who eventually comes out to meet him. We see that in verse 34, where that when Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah after defeating the Ammonites, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, celebrating his victory. She was his only child. Besides her, Jephthah had neither son nor daughter. And you'll notice that what is emphasized here is not Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites. In fact, the defeat of the Ammonites is, is only very briefly mentioned. It serves more like the background to this scene. It's the setting for what is the focus, and the focus is Jephthah's tragic vow. I mean, even after all this buildup, going back to, to chapter 10, verse 6, we had, we've had the oppression of the Ammonites, all this buildup, all the stuff about, about their, the, the Gileadites calling Jephthah. We would expect, you know, in a normal sort of story, we might expect there to be a big battle scene. But what? It's only described in just like a verse or two, and we don't even get told like exactly what happens. We just know that he defeats them, that God handed them over. It's not the focus. What's the focus? Not the victory itself, but the tragedy that mars it. As one commentator says, our narrator here wants to swallow up victory in sorrow. The point, in other words, that we're supposed to get is that, is that there's tragedy that mars the victory. And the passage focuses quite a bit on Jephthah's daughter's virginity. So you'll notice that she asks for a two-month reprieve in verse 37 to weep for her virginity. In verse 38, she and her companions go and they weep for her virginity. And then after the vow is fulfilled, the passage makes a point to add that she had never known a man. That is, she was a virgin, verse 39. And so there's a lot of discussion in this passage over whether Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter, like killed her, or given this focus on virginity, whether he maybe offered her up to the Lord in a more symbolic way, like dedicated to her, her to service at the tabernacle, and this, for whatever reason, would have prohibited her, prohibited her from being married, uh, so she would have been a virgin till her death. And if you're interested in all the, the details of the different arguments either way, I wrote an article on my website that kind of spells that out. We're not going to have time to get into, into all that here, but if you're interested, you can check that out. In either case, though, regardless of the interpretation, the vow is seen as tragic in this passage and foolish. You see how Jephthah and his daughter both respond. This is not good. But I do think it's more likely that Jephthah actually did kill his daughter. The reason I think that there's such a focus here on her virginity is to highlight that her death is especially tragic. Of course, it's tragic that she dies, but it's especially tragic because she's dying childless, which is an especially disgraceful thing for a woman in that culture where women, the value of women was very much bound up with their ability to produce children. And since she is Jephthah's only child, which the passage goes out of its way to tell us, that means Jephthah's family line is ending here. Additionally, I think it's actually likely that Jephthah not only sacrificed his daughter, but intended to offer a human sacrifice all along. In verse 31, the ESV, which we preach out of, it says, Whatever comes out from the door of my house to meet me, dot, 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 I will offer it up. Whatever it. 
But this should probably be translated as some translations put it, like the Christian Standard Bible, where it says, whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me, I will offer that person, literally I'll offer him, it's a, it's a personal pronoun there, I'll offer him up as a burnt offering. You know, even the language of coming out of the doors of a house to meet or greet, that sounds more like something a human does, not an animal like a sheep or something. And finally, if Jephthah had promised, if it wasn't his intention to promise sacrificing an animal, then certainly when his daughter came out to meet him, he never would have considered her eligible to be sacrificed. He never would have seen the vow as having been binding on her, a human, because what he would have promised was an animal, right? In other words, I think Jephthah is acting like the surrounding pagan nations here who we know did practice human sacrifice. He just probably wasn't expecting it to be his daughter that would be the one to get sacrificed. Maybe he was expecting it to be his servant, of one of his servants. And so to be clear, the fact that the Bible records this doesn't mean that the Bible is saying this was good or this is okay. The Bible oftentimes describes things of people acting badly, doing things they shouldn't have done. Human sacrifice was expressly forbidden by God in his law. But Jephthah views Yahweh like the pagan gods of the nations around him, the gods that folks needed to barter with, gods that could be manipulated, kind of this idea of the the relationship you had with a pagan god was if I scratch your back, you will scratch my back. And maybe we kind of behave this way at times. You think about times where you think, you know, I, I, maybe I, I, I messed up today, I sinned, or I didn't read my Bible today, so that's kind of why I think maybe my day went bad. And if I read my Bible today, then I, God kind of owes it to me that things go well today, and I do well on that project at school or that project at work. We kind of slip into that mentality of thinking that we, we should barter with God, and that's how we relate to him. Now, in those days, of course, human sacrifice was something of the Mercedes or the Cadillac of all sacrifices you could offer a god. It was the top of the line sort of sacrifice. It really showed that you meant business. And so Jephthah is attempting to do the same thing with Yahweh as he had done with the Gileadites and the king of Ammon. He's attempting to negotiate. Just as Jephthah made a deal with the Gileadites, and he sought to do the same thing with the king of Ammon. So here he is attempting to win the favor of God by striking a deal. God, if you give me victory, I'll give you sacrifice. But of course, God does not work on these terms. We can't negotiate with God. We have nothing to offer God. He has everything. He has nothing we need. Or we have nothing that he needs, I mean. We relate to God solely on the basis of his free grace, which means if it's free, it can't be earned, it can't be bought. It means that his grace can't be controlled by us. We can't manipulate him. The irony here, though, is that that Israel is under oppression because of her idolatry, right? But even as Jephthah saves Israel from this oppression due to idolatry, he continues to offer the same sort of idolatrous worship that got them into this mess to begin with. And there also seems to be some intentional parallels between this passage and the account of Abraham where Abraham nearly offers his son Isaac as a sacrifice. That's in Genesis 22. Interestingly, both of these passages involve a father faced with the prospect of sacrificing his only child. It's a very rare word that's used, and it's used in both of these passages. 
But whereas in Abraham's case, he was responding to what God had told him to do, Jephthah was doing precisely what God had told him not to do. And so Jephthah is, I think, cast here almost like an anti-Abraham. Whereas Abraham showed his willingness to offer obedience to God that he had asked for, Jephthah offers the, the disobedience that God had not asked for. Whereas Abraham's obedience demonstrated what? His faith in God. Jephthah's disobedience demonstrates the complete opposite, that he didn't have faith in God, that instead of trusting God simply to provide the victory, Jephthah felt he needed to bribe God. His view of God is that God couldn't be trusted to provide the victory. He needed to manipulate God in order to do that. And whereas in response to Abraham's faith, God blessed Abraham with offspring as many as the stars in heaven, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. The result of Jephthah's tragic disobedience left him childless and with no offspring. And so finally then we move to the third scene, which is Jephthah's negotiations with Ephraim. Here we get, this is chapter 12, 1 through 7. And now what we saw as Holly read this is that Ephraim gets upset that they weren't invited to the fight. They wanted to come out and fight. Why weren't we invited? And of course, Jephthah, of course, says, well, I did invite you, actually. And then he responds by mounting an attack and wiping out 42,000 of them. So the Gileadites, that's Jephthah's crew, they, they close off the Jordan River so that the Ephraimites cannot escape and go back to their land across the Jordan. Okay? Now this, ironically, is the very same thing that the Ephraimites have done twice earlier in the book already to foreign nations. But now they're on the receiving end of the military tactic. And so Jephthah and his men use a dialect text, test. Uh, they, they, they say, say shibboleth, okay? But uh, for whatever reason, the different dialects, you know, like we have southern and northern accents, things like that, they had a different way of talking. So they couldn't, uh, these Ephraimites couldn't say shibboleth. They ended up saying sibboleth. They'd be like, if you ever noticed, um, I've had, having lived in Illinois and having gone to a college where there's a lot of people outside of Wisconsin, Wisconsinites, we like to say any word that has, has an A with a G following it, we like to say that as egg rather than ag, like bag instead of bag. So this would be like if someone said, okay, are you from Wisconsin? We're like, no, say bag, bag. You're dead. Okay, that's what they're doing here. They're catching them in their speech patterns. And so now here what we see is a tragedy that salvation is essentially reversed. These are the very people that were being oppressed by the Ammonites, right? We saw that earlier in chapter 10, verse 9. The very same people that Jephthah ends up saving them from oppression, from military oppression. Now he ends up killing them with military oppression. Like, that was a really great salvation. You save them just to kill them. Ephraim ends up being in a worse position than they were before. They're like one of my house projects. You try to go in to fix it, and now you're worse off. And note the contrast, too, between the great length that Jephthah goes in negotiating with foreigners. Like, when he negotiates with the Ammonites, we read that whole section. It's a long section, right? But then when he gets to the Ephraimites, he barely even negotiates with them, his own kinsmen. He basically sets the record straight. Like, so he does a similar thing with, with the king of Ammon. With the king of Ammon, he tries to set the record straight. But then he waits for a reply. There's like this back and forth. Okay, how are you going to respond? But with the Ephraimites, he's far less patient with his own people. Instead of waiting for a reply, 
He just goes, instead of trying to, you know, take every possible route of diplomacy before, you know, going to war, which is what he did with the king of Ammon, here he just rushes off to fight them. Like, he sets the record straight, and he's like, okay, that's all I need to say. I'm going to attack you now, if we can even call that negotiating. And so this, this is also not the first time that Ephraim has gotten upset about being left out of the fight. It's just interesting. I remember when we are preparing a sermon series, we are reading through the book of Judges to get ready. I'm like, man, Ephraim is always getting upset about not being in a fight. Like, personally, I'd be okay if you didn't invite me to go to war. I'd be like, I don't want to fight. But Ephraim wants to fight, and they're always upset about being in the fight. You'll remember Gideon, uh, when this happened in chapter 8, Gideon is able to calm them down. He's able to offer a soft word, like Proverbs 15 says. And so uh, Ephraim calms down, everything's good. But with Jephthah, he doesn't offer a calm word. He just lashes back. You see, Israel waited 18 years, we saw in chapter 10. They waited 18 years to fight off oppression from a foreign nation. But as soon as an internal tribe raises any grief, they don't wait to be at each other's throats. As the Ammonites were called to arms in chapter 10, verse 17, you notice that in chapter 10, verse 17, it uses this language that they were called to arms. Ironically now, that very same language is used of the Ephraimites, fellow Israelites being called to arms in chapter 12, verse 1, to fight with Jephthah. This is is a tragic irony that the very military battles that were happening with outside nations are now being brought internally. In other words, we're seeing things getting worse across the book, that these, that these internal relations are deteriorating. And this, of course, anticipates the eventual civil war at the very end of the book, the last passage of the book, chapter 19 through 21, where Israel is essentially going to nearly wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And again, notice how much attention the narrator gives to this internal fighting. Like, the things that you would maybe, if you were writing this account, that maybe you would want to emphasize, that's one thing. But notice what this narrator emphasizes. That helps us know what his stress is. Notice how much attention he gives to the internal fighting between Jephthah and Ephraim compared to the time that he spent on the defeat of the Ammonites, which is like a verse, basically. Why the attention on the internal fighting? Because the book wants to highlight not so much the salvation here, but the disaster, again, that marred it. The book's primary, primary concern isn't ultimately the, the political oppression that Israel faced, but their own internal rebellion and wayward hearts. And so again, the lesson to be had here, what this passage I think is communicating to us, is that although God provides a deliverer in the person of Jephthah, that deliverance that he brings is marred with disaster and tragedy. That's what we're supposed to take away. That deliverance is happening. Yes, God has provided a deliverer so graciously. We saw that last week. And yet this deliverance through Jephthah, the deliverer here, it is marred with disaster and tragedy. It is, things are essentially worse off than they were before. Things progressively get worse in each of Jephthah's negotiations. So with the Gileadites we saw last week, It's a successful negotiation. Jephthah gets what he asked for. He becomes their leader. With the king of Ammon, he corresponds with them, so he has some good dialogue. That's good. But but eventually he receives a sharp no, so it doesn't go well. With God, he gets utter silence. There's no response. And then with Ephraim, the negotiations barely even get off the ground because he goes straight into attacking them. 
And there are significant parallels to the Abimelech account as well. Do you remember Abimelech? He was a son of Gideon. It was kind of that long section where he tried to become king, and then he and Shechem kind of, they kind of uh, get together, but then they end up fighting each other, and a millstone gets dropped on his head, all that crazy stuff. Well, this passage with Jephthah, Jephthah is cast in very similar, like interestingly similar form to Abimelech. You'll notice both of them were the son of some outside woman. So um, in the case of Abimelech, he was the son of a concubine. In the case of Jephthah, he's the son of a prostitute. So there's a little bit of sketchy things going on in terms of their pedigree. Both had strained relationships with their half-brothers. Abimelech kills his, and Jephthah is driven out by his. Both gathered, quote-unquote, worthless men around them. That same language is used in both. Kind of got this mob thing going on. Both were called by their relatives to lead them. Abimelech was called by Shechem to lead him, to lead them. Jephthah was called by the Gileadites to lead. And then both end up attacking Israelites. Both engage in civil war, whether that's attacking Shechem or attacking Ephraim. And then finally, there's a parallel with Ephraim, where Ephraim in both cases gets riled up. First, Ephraim gets really riled up and upset with Gideon, which was Abimelech's dad, when he left them out of the fight, as we saw. And now Jephthah here, they get upset for being left out of the fight with him. There's a lot of parallels. And what do we make of this parallel? Uh, samples. I, I think the parallel casts Jephthah as like a continuation of the bad legacy of Abimelech. It's a continuation of the tragic conditions of Abimelech. If Abimelech was bad, it's sort of those traits sort of linger on. In other words, these Abimelech Abimelech-like traits linger on and contaminate now even the deliverers of Israel. And so by the end of this situation, yes, the Ammonites are defeated. Yes, Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. There's deliverance. But then again, Jephthah's daughter, his only child, is dead. Forty-two Ephraimites are dead as well. And so even where victory was achieved, it's not a clean victory. It might not even be accurate to say, as I've been saying, that, that that tragedy marred this salvation. That might be too nice. Rather, according to our narrator, tragedy and disaster essentially overshadow the victory. The victory is just, is just like a blip, uh, just like an afterthought. It's just the background. At the beginning of the cycle, Israel was endangered by two things. Her religious waywardness, she was going after idols, and her political oppression, military attacks, she was being oppressed by the Ammonites. Two things, idolatry, religious waywardness, and military attacks. And now at the very end, Jephthah, their deliverer, reintroduces both of those two things again. Religious idolatry by sacrificing his daughter and military attack, killing the Ephraimites. As one commentator says, the writer here is suggesting that if we seek a perfect salvation, We will have to look to one greater than Jephthah. You see, we need a king who can fully and perfectly rescue us from our enemies. Someone who can perfectly and fully eliminate evil and usher in shalom, peace. This rule began in the garden where God created Adam to rule and to have dominion over the earth. That's what it meant to be created in the image of God. To reflect his rule. He was meant to be the ruler over and to care for God's creation on God's behalf as God's appointed king. And so when evil entered into the garden in the form of that servant, or that serpent, I mean, what Adam should have done 
was what? To protect the garden, to destroy the serpent and banish evil. But Adam, of course, as we know, he failed to do that and he neglected his duty as king. And so ever since, humanity has allowed evil to infiltrate God's good world. And not only that, but we've even allowed sin to infiltrate our own hearts as well. That instead of ruling over sin, sin now rules over us. Not only do we fail to rule for God, but we've even flipped loyalties. We've flipped sides. That we actually revolt against God. That we've crossed over and sided with with his enemy. The story of scripture, though, is the story of God reestablishing his rule over creation and over his new people. That even as early as Genesis 3.15, God promised, one, a, a, a seed of the woman, that is an offspring from Eve's line, who would one day crush the head of that serpent, doing what Adam had failed to do. God makes these promises known in the covenants throughout scripture, And then he makes good on those promises of the covenants in in the act of the Exodus. He brings his people out of enslavement in Egypt in order to make them a kingdom of priests who will then once again be under his rule, under his law. But of course, as we know, the people of Israel fail to live under God's rule. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the people, we might say. The judges, these sort of tribal rulers, They actually get progressively worse and worse over time, as we've seen. And so they anticipate the need for something more. By the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, everyone's doing evil and doing whatever they think is right in their own own sight, just as they've done evil in God's sight throughout the book. And then what gets paired with that is there's no king in the land. And so we get this idea, like, we need a king to help lead us in righteousness so people aren't just doing whatever. They're not doing evil in God's sight. We need a king that can unify the people, get rid of this internal strife, and lead them in righteousness. But then even when we do get a king, even though a king is what's needed, we see that the kings of Israel end up not being the sort of king that is needed. The kings, they lead, all right, but they more often than not, instead of leading the people in righteousness, they just lead them straight into more and more idolatry. It's a very similar argument to what we have in the book of Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews talks about how there's this Old Testament sacrificial system that couldn't perfect and cleanse our consciences. That Even the fact that these sacrifices had to be repeated, it shows this, that they weren't sufficient. Rather, another sacrifice had to be offered. And another, and another, and another. And so too with the priesthood and the covenant itself, A new priesthood is what is needed. A new covenant is what is required. The old, by nature, by design, is insufficient and is meant to point us to something greater. It's a shadow of the reality to come. And so Jesus is the ultimate king that the Old Testament always longed for. He's the ruler that was always needed. Jephthah is one case study in a long line of failed rulers who provide tarnished and insufficient salvation. That our own human efforts to save, they never satisfy. They only end up in failure. What we need, finally, is actually God himself to enter the story and for him to do the saving on on our behalf. And that is exactly what God has done in Christ. 
that Christ is the promised seed from that woman who finally crushes the head of the serpent, that he banishes evil from the garden and he reestablishes perfect rule over God's people. And in order to make us citizens of that reign, we can't just come in with all of our sin and all of our evil, all of our guilt. And so he actually dies for his citizens. He dies for his subjects, paying for our crimes on the cross so that we can enter his kingdom and stand before God is forgiven. This is the good news of Christianity. This is what we talk about when we say the gospel that makes us maturing followers of Jesus. And so believer, continue to trust this message with all your hearts. That's what this passage wants us to know deep down. We are in desperate need of God's grace. This is our only hope, is that God has saved us. Continue to look to King Jesus as our only hope in life and death. And if you're here today and you are not yet a worshiper of Jesus, this passage calls you to put your trust in him today, to receive his Christ, his cross-bought forgiveness, and come and join us under the reign of his loving kingship. And so we are in desperate need of God's grace, this passage tells us. Again, Jephthah is a case study of our sinfulness and our futility and the need for God to bring perfect rescue that we can't achieve. So how do we respond to this message? First of all, we should know that we're far more messed up than we realize. We're far more messed up than we probably realize. Like the Ephraimites, when God delivers us, what do we do? We immediately respond with ingratitude. We go right back to our, idol- our idolatry. We attack the giver. Or like Jephthah and his response to the Ephraimites, that we're, we're far more impatient with others than we should be. Even though we ourselves are in need of so much grace, we're like the, the servant who, who's unforgiving, who's been forgiven so much, and then he goes and demands the little bit of debt from, from those under him. And so Jephthah, even though he's a very messed up person in need of God's grace, he responds so impatiently to the Ephraimites. Or we're like Jephthah, who acted like the pagan nations. Jephthah sacrifices his child, doing what the pagan nations did. He he represents this Canaanization of Israel. Rather than Israel eliminating the Canaanites and being a distinct and holy people like they were supposed to do, what does Israel do? They leave the nations around them, and then they end up becoming like the nations. And we, too, often act like our surrounding nations, so to say. That Jephthah listened to and was influenced by the culture around him, And so, too, we should ask ourselves, in in what ways am I buying into the messages of our culture? That we desperately need God's grace, and, 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 and we need this message. We need to know that we need God's grace, because our tendency, instead, is to be far too self-confident in ourselves. We, our tendency is to think really highly of ourselves, that we, we don't actually think we're nearly as messed up as we are. But when we believe this message, it means we'll become more self-examining, more suspicious of our instincts, our views, our motives. We'll be more alert to the way culture around us is potentially exerting influence on us. That we're more messed up than we realize. And when we believe this, rather than being content with where we are then, we'll assume that we still have a lot of work to do in our sanctification. We're going to assume that where we are is not where we should be. There's still a lot of work to do in our sanctification as parents, as spouses, as citizens, as fellow church members with one another, etc. And so we're far more 
messed up than we realize. Secondly, we're far more indebted to God's grace than we probably would like to think. We're far more indebted to God's grace than we would like to think. That like Jephthah, when he offers his, his child as a sacrifice, we too want a God that can be bought. We want a God where we can manipulate God's responses, where we can then get a measure of control over God. We can be the one in control. Or we feel like we relate to God based on what we can offer him. And so we slip into thinking that we need to sort of work an angle on God in order to get him to be positively disposed to us. That's our default mode. This, this like, on the one hand, this is, can be a very... This truth can be a very distressing truth, but it can also be a very comforting one. The reason I think it can be distressing to us, we can, we can find it bothersome, is because relating to God solely based on grace can feel scary. Because that means that God can't be bought. We can't control him. His grace is free, which means that it's unrestrained. Like, it doesn't depend on us, and if it doesn't depend on, on us, that means there's nothing that we can do to control or influence his grace. And we don't like that. We want, we want to be in control. But this truth is also incredibly comforting. It should be comforting. Because if it was up to us to control it, we wouldn't have anything to offer him. If it did depend on us, that would be bad, because we wouldn't be able to earn his grace. His grace is, is a deep comfort, a deep source of assurance for us, because then we realize it doesn't depend on us. And if it did, we'd be hopeless. But knowing that it all depends on God's grace, it ends our toil, that we can rest because we realize that we literally have nothing to offer him to earn his favor. It's entirely free. And then thirdly, this passage shows that when God does choose to use us, it's not because of us, but despite of us. When God chooses to use us, it's not because of us, but despite of us. That Jephthah is, is just the sort of unlikely person that God likes to use throughout Scripture, right? God oftentimes chooses not the firstborn, but the secondborn. There's, there's all these themes throughout Scripture where God is going after these unlikely people. And Jephthah is just like that. He, he's an illegitimate child. He's banished from his family. He's a mob boss, essentially. He's, he has all these sinful and foolish actions throughout the passage. And yet God does use him. And he does so in order to show that it wasn't by Jephthah's power, but anything that's accomplished is by God's power. This is how Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where God's grace is made known in weakness because then when God uses weak vessels like us, it shows that all along it was never the weak vessel. It must have been God's power. And so we can be encouraged that God works through weak people like us. And when God does, we know that we're not to take credit for it then because we're messed up. That if things actually did depend entirely on us, it would be a disaster every time. And so knowing this, as we proceed in ministering to others, we proceed in our mission, we are consciously dependent on him. And in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper showcases our desperate need of God's grace because the Lord's Supper showcases that the grace we so desperately need is available to us in Christ. Every week, the Lord's Supper is offered to us to say, this is the grace that is yours in Christ for those who believe in him. The bread and the wine depicting symbolic, uh, pictured promises of God's saving grace to us in the death of Christ, that he died for us. And so all those 
who partake in Christ by faith are invited to partake of Christ through these, uh, these physical signs of that promise.